Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Black in Boston and Beyond, a podcast of the Trotter Institute at UMass Boston. I'm Hedy V. Williams, your host. Today on Black in Boston and Beyond, we have Jonathan Eig, and he's the best-selling author of Ali, A Life, winner of the 2018 Pen America Literary Award, and a finalist for the Mark Linton History Prize. He also served as a senior consulting producer for the PBS series, Muhammad Ali. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you, Hetty. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk about what I think is an evocative, monumental work on Martin Luther King which is the focus of our discussion today. King, A Life is a recent book about uh, Martin Luther King. It's an extensive biography and probably one of the most important books written about the life of a very complex uh, man. And But first, what we'll do is talk about Jonathan's uh, journey into becoming a writer. And what I really want to know, I want to know about how you... How does one become a best-selling author? It's like my sort of, um, you know, insider knowledge I would love to know. But tell us a little bit about uh, your research and writing interest and, you know, and, and perhaps a little bit about that journey into becoming a writer. Well, it felt like the only thing I was ever good at, in, you know, going all the way back to like grade school. I was good at the writing stuff and not so good at the at the math and um, the science. So I just always gravitated that way. And I was also a really shy kid. So when I discovered that there was a school paper um, in junior high school, I began writing for it because it was a great way to express myself without having to talk to people. You know, then I found I could talk to people when I had a notebook in my hands. Like I could go interview the principal. I could go interview, uh, you know, football players, you know, it was, I wouldn't talk to them any other way, but with a notebook I could. So I became a, a reporter um, as, 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 as in school. And then um, in college, I majored in journalism and worked for the school paper. I became a newspaper reporter after college and um, worked as a newspaper reporter for a long time and just thought that's what I would do for the rest of my life. I was perfectly happy doing that. But I had an idea for a book one day. I, I had several ideas for books, but then I finally had the courage to actually attempt to write one. Um, this was back in the late 1990s. I began working on a biography of, of Lou Gehrig, uh, the baseball player who died of ALS. Um, and and that really changed my the arc of my career. I began thinking that maybe I could do books. And eventually I, I left my newspaper job. At the, I was at the Wall Street Journal at the time. And I began writing a series of books. And, and I, with each book I've gotten, I think, a little bit more ambitious. Each book has been a little harder than the last one. And this King book, which was definitely the, the biggest and hardest thing I've ever done, took me six years to write. But I, I like to say that I'm still doing the same thing I did when I was a, a junior high school newspaper reporter. I'm taking my notebook out into the world. I'm interviewing people. I'm learning things. I'm, I'm researching and I'm writing what I learn. And um, it's just so much fun. I, I, I can't believe I get paid to do this. <laughs> So I like a few things that you discuss because I, I love to write as well as a historian and I am a very shy person and I, it's sort of similar journeys, I think, turning towards history and writing, love of writing. But the part you said about holding your notebook and, and as a sh- sort of 
person on the shy side, at least it's almost like something to hide behind mm-hmm. a little bit. And people, when I tell people I'm shy, but I'm a, a college professor, I said, well, you have to, that's a very controlled space, right? You stand behind the lectern, you get to hide a little bit and it, you, you know, you have a script, right? Mm-hmm. You know, your lecture. So, but it has helped me get a break out of my shell a bit. It's sort of therapeutic, I think, the teaching. I agree that with regard. that. And I think, you know, in the beginning, you think of yourself as invisible and you think that you're only there to record what the people have to say. But as you get better at it, you get a little more confident and you realize that, you know, you bring something to the equation too, and that the story ultimately is yours to shape. And that's a big responsibility. You know, you can't deny the fact that you play an important role in this process. And it's it would be disingenuous to suggest that, you know, the journalist is invisible and, and none of the journalists or the author's biases make it into the story, right? You have to really be honest about that and um, and dig deep to tell the story um, in, a, in the best, smartest, most honest possible way. And, and also, I think, you know, recognize your own, your own biases, your own weaknesses, your own um, areas of, uh, of ignorance and, and, and do your best to overcome them. As journalism, it's a lot like history. I think historians and journalists share a lot in terms of uh, how we uh, do our craft. I feel there's a lot of overlap and similarities between, especially those who do public history mm-hmm. and uh, oral histories. Uh, it's very much a biography, but it's obviously a history. And a lot of your writing is historical, you know, about historical figures and uh, sports. So biography, let's talk a little bit about the craft of writing biography. And I think it's probably one of the most difficult genres uh, of writing. Uh, and so tell us a little bit about your process. And, and you know, these are monumental works. I mean, the, your book on King is 500 plus pages. What, what about process and sources? I know particularly with King, when I remember doing my MA thesis year, many years ago, and it was very difficult. At that time, his papers were not open to the public. The King Center, I think, had just you know, allowed people to come in sort of to uh, examine some of the artifacts and papers there. So it was very difficult for me to get that done, you know, in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about writing biography in the process. Well, biography is hard in that, you know, you can never be sure that you're getting it right. There is no right, actually. You know, it's it's impossible to write a complete, 100% satisfactory biography because we don't know what's inside someone's head. Um, we don't know what their inner lives are like. Um, I often think that my biography subjects would just laugh at me if they read what I wrote because, you know, I'm only getting, uh, you know, what's available on the surface in a way, even if you have letters. Um, you don't know which letters you're missing. You don't know how honest the letters are. Um, even if you have diaries, you don't know, um, what, what was really going on at the time those diaries were being written. So there's no way to write a completely, you know, there's no way to write uh, write a perfect biography. So you're just trying to write the least flawed biography that you possibly can. And you have to go into it with so much humility, knowing that I've never met Martin Luther King. I've never met Muhammad Ali or Lou Gehrig. And I have to uh, try to assemble the pieces of their life in a way that makes sense, using all the information that I can. And for King, 
as you mentioned, on the one hand, there's a, there's enormous amounts of material available. There've been scores of books written about him. We've got FB, we got thousands of pages of FBI documents, and I found lots of new materials. I found um, the the personal archives. Uh, basically, King had a had a full time archivist working for the SCLC, uh, Lawrence Red, Lawrence Reddick, and he kept all of his papers, and they were just recently um, made available to the public. Um, thousands of pages of, of 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 stuff from the Montgomery bus boycott, where sociologists were down there documenting and interviewing people on the ground. So there's there's lots of new stuff, um, and I think that was important. Also. Um, hundreds of people alive still who knew King. And uh, that was really one of the important keys to this book is that I, I, you know, I I was able to do some of the last interviews with folks like Harry Belafonte and John Lewis, but also people who are not famous like King's barber from Montgomery or his childhood friend, June Butts. So it was, um, it was just so much to work with. This book took me six years, but it could have taken me 12. I easily could have kept going and, and continued to find new material. And I would have continued to be challenged by the, by the story. I was going to say this could easily, and that, I mean, it's a 500 page book, but it's well-written and worth the read. Uh, Cause you're, you're very, you know, just an eloquent writer. Thank you. And I think that's just makes a big difference <laughs> when you're reading a book and, you know, uh, but the things that you've said about the the new sources, it could have easily been a multi-volume. And it's making me think of that book, that trilogy about um, Lyndon Johnson, the master of the Senate. Oh yeah. The Robert Caro uh, books. Yeah. Like this could have easily been like a multi-volume, multi-volume work. I think. I thought uh, about that. And I actually asked my editor at one point when I found all those documents in Montgomery, I thought, wow, I could do a whole book just, leading his childhood up to Montgomery and stop there and then do another volume after that. But one of the really important things for me that I kept in mind as I undertook this project was that I wanted it to be readable. I wanted people people to en- engage with King in a new way, in a more emotional way. And I wanted them to cry at the end of the book. I wanted them to have trouble putting it down when we got to Memphis. Um, and, and you can't do that if you do three volumes. It's just going to bog down and, and people have a tendency to read the first volume and then give up. So I, I, you know, yeah, I could have probably spent the rest of my life working on a a trilogy of books about King, but I really wanted to make this something that people would, would, would read, would want to read and not feel like they had to read. And they did because it's a bestseller. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. It's pretty good. Just, yeah. So let's turn to the book and let's, um, Look, you know, I think there's so much been written about King, but what no, I don't think any other writer has truly captured him the way you have in this book. And so in terms of the complexity, right, there is a sanitized uh, version of King out there that is in public space. But you're fair, I think, in that you balance, you know, the troubled King, right? The hero and also the troubled man. So let's turn to your book and talk a little bit about his uh, background. You open the book with the story of his father and um, his grandmother. Um, open the story for us and tell us a little bit about that family background. Yeah, you know it was complicated, and and, and we don't do a history any favors when we sanitize it. You know, King was flawed. 
um, his, his, some of his issues go back to his relationship with his father. And I was fascinated by, by Martin Luther King Sr. or Daddy King, as everybody calls him. You know, he was born in, in Stockbridge, Georgia, into a sharecropping family, uh, you know, bitter poverty, really no chance of escape, no chance to ever earn a decent income as long as they're working on land that was owned by this white farmer uh, who um, kept them in, in perpetual debt. So Daddy King, at the age of about 12, just walks off the farm um, and makes his way to Atlanta and, and, and makes it possible for the next generation to do what it does, makes it possible for his son to become a world leader. Uh, but that story is, is remarkable. And, and Daddy King is such a strong figure that Martin Luther King never really fully escapes his shadow, never feels like he can satisfy his father, um, really has a hard time saying, standing up to the, to the old man. And, and we see that in, in so many of his relationships. We see that he's afraid of conflict, which is a funny thing to say because, you know, he's our greatest protest leader. He's, he's all about conflict, right? But he, he hates conflict. And I think that makes me admire him even more because he has to, go against his basic basic instincts to, to do what he does and to stand up to presidents, to stand up to sheriffs, to stand up to, to, um, to, to mayors. And, um, and, and King is always struggling. You know, he's a very emotional guy. He's, he's sad uh, much of the time. You know, we, we learned that he discovered that he attempted suicide twice as a teenager, that he probably struggled with depression all his life. And I get the feeling for much of his life, especially after he became the center of the civil rights movement and the, the focus of all this harassment from the FBI, that he was kind of miserable. I, I don't think, you know, but, but he felt like he had no choice, that, that he had to sacrifice any of his own happiness, maybe even sacrifice his own life for what he believed in. Yeah, I mean, this whole idea of... of he struggled. He was, he, he had, you know, anxiety, depression, but his fame, you know, his favorite hymn, I want to be more and more like Jesus, I think tells us something about this life that he chose to live, you know, that song. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, and in some ways it might seem obvious because he's a preacher and he's dedicated his life to, to Jesus, but He's actually doing. He's actually believes it. You know, he's actually trying to live up to that example. And it's one thing to talk about it, but he's actually out there doing it so that every time that he might be tempted to step back, you know, he got stabbed in the chest. His home was bombed. He, any one of those times, he came so close to dying that he easily could have said, "It's time for me to scale back. It's time for me to let someone else lead for a while." Uh, I'd be better off and the world would be better off if I just went and wrote some books or taught some classes. But he couldn't do it. He just couldn't because that's not being more like Jesus, right? Um, he had to stand up for what he believed in. And as the more famous he got and the more pressure he was under, the more responsibility he felt to use his his powers, to use his um, his fame and and to – really doubled down on what he believed in. He, uh, he went from fighting for civil rights to fighting for human rights, to fighting income inequality, fighting war. You know, he, um, he only went bigger and bigger as he went along. Yeah. I think, um, this perfectionism, right. I think he might, I mean, he was a brilliant theologian, scholar, all of those things. I think those are the pieces we sometimes miss too. 
of him and um, this discussion are really turning uh, Nietzsche's idea of the will to power on its head, talking about love and justice and power and the strength to love, right? Love being a powerful fort. So, you know, he was very much uh, a thinker. We, we, we're recovering, I think, the intellectual that he was a little bit more now. Uh, and I think your book is a part of this larger King studies, like almost a renaissance in looking at him again by writers and scholars alike. But he's also surrounded by some very strong Black women in his life, including his grandmother, mother, uh, sister, his wife. Tell us a little bit about the women in his life. That's a great question. And it's really one of the most fascinating areas of his life because he's clearly shaped by these smart, powerful women. women. His mother is more educated than his father. His mother really helps his, helps Daddy King get through college and, and get, a, get a degree. Um, and his wife is not only incredibly well-educated, but she's more of an activist than he is when they met. So Coretta Scott King is, is so um, little understood, so um, unappreciated. I think what King loves about her is the fact that she is an activist and she's more of an activist. She has more experience than he does at the time they meet. So King clearly benefits from the presence of strong, smart women in his life. And yet, however, you know, he does not reward them with the kinds of opportunities that they deserve. And he does not embrace the potential of women as leaders in the movement. He overlooks them and turns them aside over and over again. And Coretta calls him on it. Coretta says, you know, I feel a calling to do this work too. I want to be out there doing what you're doing. And King says, no, your role is to stay home with the children. That is the woman's role. I mean, he could not be more patronizing about it if he tried. And it's it's frustrating because we like to think of King as being this great fighter for equality, but he's got this serious blind spot. And and he and the movement would have been better off, I think, if he had um, overcome that blind spot. But, you know, it's just another example of the fact that our heroes, are, they ain't perfect. Yeah, it's, just, it's you know, you look into his humanity. That That's the thing. There's um, it's a recent book that's coming out. I was really reading uh, the name escapes me right now, but uh, uh, just a part, a clip of the um, review discusses King. The book discusses King as a, a, a sexist womanizer. Mm. And I'm just like, well, we, that's a reductionist uh, lens. There's yeah. you no know, humans are much more complex and their faults, but complex. Yeah, and I, I, I was, I've been pleasantly surprised. I was worried that people wouldn't want to read about the flawed king; that they would prefer the, to keep him on the pedestal. Uh, but the response to the book has been really wonderful in that way. People seem to be embracing the complexity and respecting him, um, and and in some ways, I think admiring him more because they see him as as human. I think you know our heroes can mean more to us if we see them as as humans and and they don't have to be perfect because nobody's perfect right it's 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 a lie to pretend that your heroes are are somehow 
incapable of of judgments of of errors in judgment. Sure, I, I think the best biographies reclaim, uh, you know, the human, right, the human dimension uh, of of a person. You know, it's it's the best biographies, right? If you can get close to, okay, this person had fault, but he did this great thing, and try to look for um, the whole human that's right he was so you let's go back to this point again about his father um, and the influence his father had i I recently interviewed maurice wallace he did that book uh, king's vibrato Mm -hmm. and just looking at the sound of king the sonic life of king and his voice and and how he was a different preacher from his father he didn't preach the way his father necessarily uh, preached. And so I'm wondering why the father loomed so large in his life and maybe connected to this sort of anxiety he had. If we could uh, talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, Daddy King was a very powerful figure and a very controlling figure. He was he was violent. You know, He spanked the kids. And very early on, you see... Little Mike, as they called him back then, um, finding his way of of protesting, of standing up to his father, but in subtle ways. So when the kids would be spanked, um, ML or Little Mike would um, would refuse to react. And, it, and in some ways, it's the earliest example of his uh, use of nonviolence. By refusing to react, he takes away the power of his oppressor. Just as you know, by refusing to uh, fight back. Uh, against the water cannons and the police dogs, you weaken, you 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 seize the higher moral ground, right? And suddenly, Bull Connor um, loses his power because the, because you're showing your superiority. And and in some ways, King's doing that with his father. He's refusing to to cry when he's spanked. And I think we see that push and pull constantly. Where when when King begins to lead the Montgomery bus boycott, the first time his home is bombed. Daddy King and Coretta's father, O.B. Scott, um, come racing into Montgomery and saying, you know, we're taking you home. This is over. You know, you've got a baby in the house. Um, You're not going to risk your life for this bus boycott. And Martin says to his father, well, we'll see. You know, you can't say, no, dad, we're staying. Coretta can. Coretta stands up to, to the parents and she says we're staying, but but Martin just says, Well, okay, I hear you, and waits for his father to leave, and then and then, you know, keeps keeps um on the track. You know, he's not going to quit. But it's just fascinating to see over and over. And and Daddy King said several times he wished his son had not emerged as the leader of this movement. It was too dangerous. Sure, and that danger comes back, you know, to haunt them even after right? Uh, King is assassinated. It's, you know, it never leaves the family. I, recently, we had um, his daughter at, you know, Monmouth University give a talk, and she had several, obviously, several security guards, and one of them stood right behind her the entire time wow. when she was signing books. And I thought about, like, the life, not only that her father led, but the family led with the threats of violence and just imagine having to live your life that way. 
No, not only that. I mean, I talked to one of King's friends who said that they were in an elevator together and the elevator door opened and King practically had a heart attack. Like he saw this woman across, oh, at, outside, you know, in front of the elevator who looked like the woman who had stabbed him. And it wasn't her, mm-hmm. but he just had this panic attack in that moment. But it's not only that, it's not only the, the, the fear of, of death, but knowing that your own government is, is harassing you, is stalking you, is trying to destroy you, that they are tapping your phones and, and, and installing listening devices in your hotel rooms and sending this material out to the press, that they are actively trying to damage your career, dest- um, destroy your reputation, and creating the kind of environment in which some racist might think it's a, it's his patriotic duty to kill. Mm. That is that is right. The source of his anxiety, right, with the FBI. Yeah. So it wasn't irrational for him yeah. to be to be sure paranoid or to be depressed or to be um, to be afraid to get up and you know to have a hard time getting up in the morning. It was all this was stacked against him. Yeah, that's just a you know and a part of the more complex life that he, he lived, you know, he, you know, as you say, he struggled with this depression really early on. Like his first suicide attempt, wasn't he 12 or very young? Yeah, that's right. He was 12 years old and he learned that his, um, his grandmother had been hurt and he felt like maybe he was responsible because they were playing in the house and he, his brother had, had bumped into his, grandmother and she fell and got hurt and he thought she was maybe dead and then he ran upstairs and jumped out a window he was so upset Mm -hmm. so clearly a very emotional young man and then he was definitely hospitalized you know numerous times for what you know he called exhaustion and coretta called it depression and several other people you know close to him thought he was clinically depressed and would have benefited from from psychiatric care and possibly medication but he wouldn't do it because he was afraid that if the word got out that he was seeing a, a a psychiatrist that the FBI would use that as further ammunition to destroy his reputation. Um, so my, you know, on this topic, my, so my mom uh, was from Albany, Georgia, and she was uh, active in the Albany movement uh, when Martin Luther King came to Albany, Georgia. And my mom told us the story that, you know, why, you know, Albany was seen as a failed campaign and uh, she tells the story that was told to her as to why, because I was asking, you know, why did this, why is this seen as a failed campaign? And, you know, why did King leave? And she said the story was told that one of his good friends had a nervous breakdown in the jail. Mm. And they said, you know, if you, if you don't, if you leave town, we'll make sure, you know, we'll release him and we'll get him some help. And, that was the story that my mom told me. And um, so I, you know, making this connection perhaps that he had realized, you know, his friend was suffering and couldn't go on. Uh, And um, so just, you know, looking at the stigma that's attached to, especially in African-American culture in African-American men, when it comes to things like anxiety, depression, and or mental uh, illness. This is an important story, I think, to tell. No, I couldn't agree Uh, more. And it's also not um, 
unreasonable to think that um, that story is accurate. We know what it meant to go to jail. Um, people disappeared in jail um, mm-hmm. all the time. They still do, but back then even more. So, you know, if, if, if you're sent, if a black man is sent to a prison, um, he knows what that could mean. And, and King himself suffered that anxiety. That's why Ralph Abernathy always tried to get arrested with King because he knew that King really suffered in isolation and um, had the, you know, in a, on top of the, the rational fear that, you know, you could be, you could be hurt in jail. Uh, but there was, he also had, you know, just an even greater anxiety just around being alone uh, in those conditions. So Abernathy would try to uh, keep him company when he could. So let's turn to King's connection to Boston. I think his time in Boston was very formative. And now uh, the city of Boston is really, you know, make or at least activists in the city want to try and reclaim the the story because of course that's where he meets his future wife and uh, important I think mentors while he's in school there. Uh, tell us a little bit more about King's Boston connection. Yeah, Boston's important to King's development. You know, we tend to think of King as being all about the South for the first you know, 10 years of his career as an activist, but he wasn't. He was traveling throughout the North constantly. And he was first exposed to some of the issues of segregation and racism in the North when he came to study, uh, first at at, um, Crozier Seminary in Pennsylvania, and then in Boston at at BU. And he saw how difficult it was to to get housing. He saw um, certainly that there was a lot more freedom for black people and a lot more opportunities. You know, they they called it freedom land compared to the South um, where they'd grown up. Uh, but nevertheless, he became aware of just how pernicious some of the more subtle forms of racism were in the North. And um, he, but but he really flowers in Boston. He finds this great intellectual community. He emerges as a leader of these these salons that that meet at his apartment, um, the Philosophical Club they call it. And 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 he's also you know very active in the community, uh, dating women, uh, making friends. He's he he emerges even then as somebody who people see as a leader. And I think that's really important to note that I think he just, he had this personality that, that people really enjoyed his company, but he also liked being the center of the tension. He liked guiding conversations. I think that, you know, he was, he was establishing some of the, the skills that would serve him well as a, as a, as a leader of a movement. Yeah. He's, I think definitely now there's, you know, public monuments, of course, the embrace one is one that's more um, recognizable. That was, I think, trending for a time when it was first designed on uh, social media. Uh, But this sort of attempt by activists and people in the city now to, to make that connection known, I think given the black freedom struggle and its roots in the Northeast and in cities like Boston, and then Malcolm X, of course, mm-hmm. has a connection for obvious reasons to um, to Boston through his sister. Uh, what? Who were some of the mentors that he met while he was in school, or, or teachers? And and um, well, um, you know, Howard Thurman would would have been probably the most important, one of the most important people he met in Boston. And um, Thurman, of course, you know, had been to India and um, believed that. It might be the, the the black people of America who really took Gandhiism to the next logical 
step and, and, and used it to fight for, for justice in America. And, um, and Thurman, um, was a Morehouse man. I think that they, uh, they had a lot in common. I think they, I can't remember if it was 1955, was it 55? They watched the world series together, Thurman and, and, uh, and, uh, and MLK and, and watch Jackie Robinson playing. I, I love the idea that, that, um, that they might've made the connection between, between Gandhi and, and, um, and Jackie Robinson, who famously, you know, had to turn the other cheek to make it in the major leagues when he first came up. So I think I, there were a lot of important influences, you know, he was studying for his dissertation. Um, but, but he was also, you know, attending black churches in, in Boston and meeting people outside the academic community. So, I think it was a time of huge um, growth for MLK. Yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. About Thurman. I have a, a good colleague that I recently interviewed about that connection really was interviewing her about Thurman. And um, when you look, I think at Thurman's work going back to the mid thirties, um, Jesus and the disheartened is 1949 in which he's saying, you know, Nonviolent direct action is might be our, you know, method for gaining uh, freedom from oppression, and I, 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 that's probably the number one influence for sure, intellectual influence uh, on King at that formative time in his life. Uh, and she argues that uh, to Jay Bueller, she argues that. Because my question was, well, Thurman, you don't see necessarily out in the streets the, the way that you do see King and other activists. Um, her argument is really he lays the kind of intellectual groundwork for the Black freedom struggle in the 50s. Very, very uh, interesting connections that she makes. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, Thurman, and she's right. And, and you're right that Thurman is one of the most important influences. And King's genius is his ability to relate that to the common person, to the protester who's staying off the buses or the protester who's marching, you know, um, in, in the face of police attacks in Birmingham, um, it's to relate that and to make them understand that they gain power, um, that the disinherited can, can conquer by, uh, by using that nonviolent approach, the same way that King used that approach with his father when his father was spanking him by, by showing your moral superiority, you, um, you rise above. And, and King was very practical about saying that we're never going to win by outgunning them. We're never going to have the, 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 the military power or the, the physical strength to overcome our oppressors. We're outnumbered. So we're going to have to do it by showing our moral superiority. And that would inspire others to join. That would inspire white people to support them, um, even if they had no stake in the, in the game, if they were you know, comfortably ensconced in the suburbs of, of New York, that uh, they would see the injustice and they would be compelled to respond. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Thurman gives us the idea. He lays the intellectual groundwork. But it, you know, King helps to give us a praxis. You know, he applies that those ideas to, you know, the everyday uh, of protesting. That's right. You know, this pra this praxis is important. You know, uh, so let's talk about memory. Let's talk about uh, King and how he has been remembered. 
I know that there is, there was, in fact, after he died, a concern by Coretta and his family about because of right the FBI tapes, and I know some of those are sealed for a certain number of years uh, that you can't get access to. Uh, and I remember when I was trying to do my master's thesis, where uh, some of his colleagues said, you know, we want these sealed for, you know, 50 years or, or what have you, but how, and so that contributes to the fact that the average person couldn't access King, right? Who was he beyond the public man we saw in the newspaper or stories written about him in the newspaper or, or in, you know, videos of him on TV speaking uh, so talk to us a little bit about how he's been remembered. First part of that question. And why do you suppose he's been remembered in a particular sort of more sanitized way? Well, it's interesting to think about why he's been sanitized and whether um, sort of the, the white power structure has intentionally sanitized his, his, his message and his life. Um, I, I, I think it's, in some ways it was accidental. It's like this unintended consequence when you, when you make someone a national holiday and you make him a monument and you turn him into the, the symbol for all of the struggle of, for civil rights, you, you, you risk watering him down. You risk diluting the message. You risk polishing off the, the rough spots. And, that's understandable. You know, if you want to teach kill kids about Martin Luther King, you start by telling them about I have a dream because that's the simplest. We all have dreams and we all want to treat each other well and and you shouldn't be judged by the color of our skin. All that's fine. But if you stop there, if you don't go much beyond that, you end up really with this sort of namby-pamby view of King and 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 we forget that he was a radical. And then then the question is are we intentionally um, shying away from from the radical parts of his message because they make us uncomfortable. And in celebrating him, do we intentionally um, soften him in a way that makes him palatable to the to the to the majority? And 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 what do we lose when we do that? I think that's one something that Harry Belafonte talked about a lot when I interviewed him. He complained that in many ways the the creation of the holiday might might turn out to be a mistake. Because we mm. lose our most, one of our most courageous, most radical figures, and we turn him into, you know, um, uh, uh, something that we that's just more easy to to digest. Somebody who we can all rally around, and that's not what he. That's not who he was. Sure, I think I remember, and I don't know how much of this is true. Wherein Coretta Scott King sort of patterned her. Um, I don't want to say memory, but her attempt to sort of safeguard his memory after uh, Jackie Kennedy, uh, who famously called, you know, the team of, of reporters to her house and discussed how we're going to safeguard Jack's memory from the bitter old men of history. Mm. You know, we're going to make sure that, you know, the image of, of JFK is not tarnished. And so she, but she worked in publishing. She was a writer. And so it makes sense that she would 
think about that on, on, in that way, perhaps. So I don't know how much of that is true in terms of the family's role in safeguarding his image. Well, the family obviously had a great interest in um, making sure that he would be remembered and that he would be honored. And of course, who wouldn't want a national holiday and who wouldn't sure. want a monument on the mall and who wouldn't want a King Center dedicated to the study of justice and, and civil rights? All of that makes perfect sense. So, you know, you, you can't criticize them at all. You can just I think what we have to wrestle with is ourselves is whether we are in, in, in celebrating him, whether we are intentionally ignoring the stuff that makes us uncomfortable. And that's partly why I wrote this book is that I wanted people to re-engage with him in a way that allowed them to to think critically and to, and to see just how radical he was, because what he was calling for is stuff that we still, you know, hear the cry for today. He was talking about police brutality. He was talking about reparations. He was talking about income inequality and, and the, how the widening militarism in, in the world was going to, you know, rot our souls. Um, so we've seen a lot of evidence that, that he was right and he was warning us about about these things. So I think we, there's still time to listen to his voice. Sure. And I think, you know, one of your chapters, New, New Emancipation Proclamation, and you use this, this language of founding father and sort of king as a founding father um, type of figure. Uh Talk to us a little bit about that as we begin to wrap things up. Yeah, I think when we think of King, we should think about somebody who deserves to be ranked among the founding fathers. I think, you know, he, he belongs on Mount Rushmore. I think he's he's one of the greatest Americans who ever lived. And and in part, it's because he, he promised or he tried to help us fulfill the promise of the Declaration and the other founding documents. So he's a founding father in that the, the those are... Those are living documents, and we are still working toward becoming a, a country where all men and women are created equal. And King was pushing us to get there. He got us closer when it comes to race than I think anyone did prior, maybe since. So I, I, I would encourage us to th you know think about him that way, even though we haven't gotten there yet, even though we have not delivered sure. on what he what he was promising, because you know you know the the founders didn't really finish the job either. So I think that it's up to us to, to finish that job. Sure. Democracy is a work in progress for sure. So what is next for you uh, with all of these, you know, great books you've written about some of our um, most, I think, important Americans. Well, I, I'm working on um, some things related to this book. I'm still out talking about it. I'm still out lecturing and I'm, working on some podcasts and some documentary film projects. And I'm trying to decide on my next book subject. It's a tough act to follow. You know, Martin Luther King um, was, this is just such a rewarding experience for me. So I, I I'm going to be judicious, but I, I have some ideas. I haven't, I just haven't settled on which one I'm going to do next. Sure. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining me today. Um, Black at Boston and beyond. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation. <laughs>